In the most divisive of times, the great debates rage on. Who was the best Batman? Was the book truly better than the movie? Did Han shoot first? Nerds with opinions will seek to answer life's greatest questions. Hello there, fellow nerds. You are listening to Nerds with Opinions, episode number 64. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holman. Today on the podcast, I am joined by guest host, Jimmy Levins, my most recurring collaborator. And that's that's going to be his title from now on. He's been on the podcast so many times that he's just going to be a guest host. Um, he's not a co-host because he doesn't do all my episodes with me, but he does a ton of them. And I think he's going to be like my go-to movie and TV guy just from here on out. So guest host Jimmy Levins and I are chatting about our quarantine watch list. Now, if you've been following along, this is a series we've been doing. This is part three of that series. And we've just been kind of like every three, four weeks compiling lists of what we've been watching um, as the COVID-19 pandemic has been ripping through the lens and we've had to have a much more indoors, isolated, at-home, quarantined sort of lifestyle. There's no movies and movie theaters, and so we're all consuming a lot of media at home. And that seems like it's starting to change, but um, I think a lot of people are still being careful. Uh, Movie theaters still really aren't open where we're at here in Southern Oregon. I think there's maybe one theater, but right now we're still consuming a lot of media at home. So we're going to talk about some of the stuff we've been watching. And if you haven't checked out part one and two yet, I would recommend that you do so. And there'll probably be a part four. Um, I'm thinking so because things are changing and loosening up a little bit, but not completely. So there's still going to be some at-home consumption. So... Here it is, Quarantine Watch List Part 3, here today on Nerds with Opinions. Okay, so let's just go ahead and get right to it. Yeah. I am back for another episode of Nerds with Opinions with guest host... And that's actually probably a good title for you, guest host. I think it's because you're, you're well like, beyond a, you're well beyond here. being a guest. Uh, but then you don't you're not necessarily a co-host because you don't do all my episodes with me. I definitely host. think. Do I, I hold like the that. record for most episodes with, with you? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I will hold that title forever. So I, I think guest host is a good good title. So guest host Jimmy Levins, he's back. Hey. And uh, we're on many, many months now, it feels like, of uh, COVID-19. I think of quarantine. Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, so we are doing, as predicted, another episode of Quarantine Watchlist. So this will be Quarantine Watchlist Part 3. Uh, so we're at trilogy status. Yeah. Now, do we... I, I'm, you know, I'm curious. Is do you think it's gonna peak out at 
at a trilogy or are we going to really go for like a full full full-fledged franchise here and take it past trilogy it's going to be interesting to see how the third uh, installment goes because as most trilogy (laughs) arcs tend to go in this either will like be the worst uh or it could be the best or it could be a complete revamp of the whole thing, depending on who's in charge of it. Uh, so I feel, I'm eager, to, but in terms of a franchise, I mean, like, things are reopening. So, like, we'll probably have more stuff to talk about because unlikely no movies are going to come in theaters anytime soon still. But, oh, yeah. like, I'm still going to be watching stuff because now we have HBO Max. So I just see myself yeah. watching more content. HBO Max dropped today. So. Let's go ahead and just get right into this. Um, kick off with your your first few that you have. Well, uh, I kind of had to reflect over this, what my kind of diet's been this past, uh, has it been a couple of weeks since the last one? So I was kind of thinking, I'm like, okay, what's been the theme? Or what's since the been last kinda- uh, episode we recorded? Because I think we started at the beginning of Ooh, May. I think it was longer than that. I'm forgetting. I don't know what day it is anymore. Um, but like, I definitely noticed my media intake's a little more like it's less than it usually is. I think because I've kind of calmed down a bit. Uh, I kind of cut back on a few of my uh, streaming services just to kind of save some money. And also, it gets really stressful to have so many at once because I feel like it's like having lots of girlfriends. You got to pay equal attention to each <laughs> one. And if you don't, like, like you get nervous and stressed about it and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll, do, I'll spend two hours this week with one. And then, then after a while, it gets really expensive. And so I'm going to stick back to streaming monogamy do you, for a while. Do you, have, do you have experience with this? Right now, well, the thing is, at the beginning of quarantine, I like jumped on a bunch of free trials. And so no, I, no, I met many girlfriends. I met many girlfriends. No, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, Date a couple people at the same time, but in terms of one girlfriend at a time for me. So, but when it comes to streaming services, I can only handle two or three at a time. I was gonna say, yeah, because you don't you don't have uh, you don't have the vibe of a of a quote unquote fuckboy. So I would have been surprised oh, yeah. by that. Just for streaming <laughs> services, I'm not anyways. Streaming services. <laughs> I just I just gotta commit to my Disney Plus and my my girl uh, Netflix and my and my babe uh, like Showtime. And, you know, I, I got a special spot in my heart for, of course, the one and only Shutter and Criterion Collection uh, channel. So it's like, nice. I mean, my, my heart's open for many. That's but, like having uh, like your, your, that's like having your goth girlfriend and then your like uh, artsy, artsy like girlfriend. <laughs> it's good to have balance. Yeah. It's fun to have a different company. Uh, but like in terms of media intake, like, as I said earlier in our first episode, I was kind of doing this filmography trek in right. a way. And so I, and I kind of was kind of jumping back and forth between a couple that I either was near the end of finishing or kind of just starting and wanted to finish. Cause once you kind of are in the mood, you just kind of really want to like just watch everything in their filmography. And I just recently wrapped up Sam Raimi's filmography. So I started off right. back in uh, mid March with the his Evil Dead trilogy, which kind of started the curve leading into uh, his last couple ones. And the few that I'm definitely like came across recently was a, uh, a handful of his lesser known ones that don't really either 
fully helm his horror director status or ones that less so. Like I saw like his uh, weird ones, like complete curveballs, for lack of a better word, like his sports film for love of the game and forgive the pun. It's a curveball of his, in his career. Cause it's literally <laughs> a sports romantic drama with Kevin Costner. There's no visual tropes of his style whatsoever in it. I, I've seen that movie and I guess I was not, I was not aware that that was the same Raimi film. I know. Right. He's like completely missing in that movie. I am like watching it and I'm like, Sam Raimi, are you there? I don't see you. Where, well, what's interesting is that that's almost more of a, lean into the sports, lean into the romance side of, I almost think it's like a spiritual sequel to Bull Durham, which um, is another Kevin Costner film, but it's just, it's interesting that he played a, a pitcher in, you know, like on a baseball team in two films. Um, And I, yeah, I mean, Bull Durham is like a little more, a little more zany and a little more like comedic, but it, it it's essentially a romance too. So I yeah, that's an interesting film. And and, and I'm kind of, I was thinking the exact same thing when I'm watching it. I'm like that it was kind of a spiritual sequel to Bull Durham, among other like at the kind of like mid peak Kevin Costner where he was romantic lead in so many movies in the nineties. And this was kind of when he's going downhill in popularity. So. Well, because yeah, because I was just thinking. So, for the love of the game, is almost like it's weird that it's not a Boulder M uh, sequel because he's like the older guy that. Or, well, I don't want to say older. He's like in Boulder M. He's the the veteran ball player that kind of takes like the younger ball player under his wing. And in for the love of the game, it's like the whole thing is that he's like on the like tail end of his career so they could easily be sequels so it's 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 interesting that that film was was made and they don't technically belong in the same universe Mm -hmm. but i feel like in an alternate reality uh they are in the same universe and are sequels (laughs) i know it's just interesting because at that point in sam raimi's career he was trying to be a lot more character driven in his uh directing choices versus exclusively horror because this is pre-spider-man it's post like say um army of darkness so this is our, our, our middle years like such right. as uh, uh for the love of the game is an, one example but uh his other good examples of more character-driven dramas that he's done were a simple plan which is a great fargo-esque murder thriller involving um uh bill paxton and billy bob thornton in the I, lead. I, again i didn't know that was a sam raimi film that's a great movie though it's, i know right uh, it, it's very it's simple awkward very simple plot like in terms of the idea of it but it's because i mean we've all talked about that like oh what would you do if you found this bag full of money um mm-hmm. so i i like yeah that's a good film very it, underrated it's funny too because i heard about these movies long before because my parents had them on dvd or i'm sorry vhs back when i was younger so like i kn- saw them in my peripheral but never really connected that they were rainy but I would say Simple Plan is at least somewhat more in his uh, oeuvre, but just because you see like these characters kind of their inner demons, so to speak, kind of come out. Uh, uh-huh. Instead of there being a physical demon like you see in the Evil Dead, it's more like the, the, the depths that humans will go to for, in this case, greed or for like having a better life. So it was a nice little juxtaposition because after going from Evil Dead just to the Spider-Man movies to 
even his like other works that are kind of oddball standouts like uh dark man which is criminally underrated i feel uh as well as like say the gift or uh the quick and the dead to then go to like these nice little simpler darker or in this case romantic kind of uh installments in his career was kind of it made me definitely appreciate his depth and uh and his vast uh, approach to directing, which makes me even more eager to see him now handle Doctor Strange 2. Yeah, that should be very interesting. I know. But I, I, overall, I've been kind of enjoying, like, kind of seeing this weird, like, if I were to have, like, a crayon to arc his career, it's kind of a bunch of squiggly lines right now. And then right. it goes, So it's been pretty fun. It's been a fun trip uh, these past two months of binging Sam Raimi movies. So, I just realized in horror that I think I marked the wrong spot on my list. Mm -hmm. So, you might have to help me here. Did I, on the last episode, did I uh, talk about... um, Because I thought I I left it off. Did I talk about like Stuber and mid-90s? Oh no no like uh I don't, you did not talk about those in the last episode. Okay okay uh, then I okay then I did mark it correctly because okay, I was good. like for some reason I was reading my list and I'm like oh I thought I talked about these okay so I was thinking the same thing too like I had to remind myself what we talked about in the previous two episodes before okay. this one. Okay good You're not alone. all right okay good um so yes so where I left off uh as mentioned in the other episodes that we did uh my wife and I have been playing this game for a while where we will one person will choose a film of the, uh, of their choosing. And there, there could be a little bit of negotiating on the part of the other person, but there is no veto power. Um, so you can essentially, you could pick whatever, you know, type of film that you want to watch. If it's like one that, you know, that your partner, would not really care to watch, or you could pick something, hey, I know you haven't seen this, I think you'll love it, let's watch this. And uh, so that's kind of the game we've been playing, and it's been uh, a lot of fun, so we just keep going back and forth. Um, So I'm going to kick it off right where I left off for the last episode. My wife picked Stuber. Um, It was a comedy film that came out last year, uh, action comedy with Dave Bautista and um, Camille Nanjiani. And you know what? I really wanted to see this in theater because I thought in theaters because I thought it looked good, and I just never really got around to it. Um, and then I heard, oh, it's real bad. It it bombed it in the box office. Um, and she picked it, and I was like, I was open to watching it, but I was not expecting much out of it. I thought, oh, it's gonna probably have a few, you know, funny parts, and that's gonna be kind of it, dude. This movie surprised the heck out of me. I think it's extremely underrated. It's it's just really good. It's very, very funny. Um, It's real. I think it's pretty tightly written um, in terms of an action comedy or, you know, kind of almost I don't want to say it's a buddy cop movie, but it's kind of a buddy cop movie because technically Camille Nanjiani is isn't a cop. He's an Uber driver, Um, but they they have that kind of like dynamic of like the, the, the tough rough guy. And then the, um, 
you know, unsuspecting sort of, you know, wimpy guy that's just kind of like getting dragged along for the ride. Um, I, yeah, I was just really surprised with it. It was uh, a really, really a funny movie. Their dynamic together was really, really great. And I've seen that same type of movie a bunch of times before not be nearly as good as this one. So if you're listening to this and you were kind of, you know, oh, interested in Stuber, but uh, I heard it was bad or, you know, I heard it didn't do well in the box office. Don't listen to that. Check it out. It's really, really good. Um, And again, to me, it shows uh, that Dave Bautista has a really, really uh, great range because the guy can, he's kind of proven that, you know, he can do a lot more than just be like the meathead guy. He's got very good comedic timing. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I was definitely, as yourself, I was allured to seeing Stuber just because the casting, the two people alone, because I think Dave Bautista and Camille have, are kind of these, I think their actors have always been underused in a lot of films. And now I feel like they're getting more stuff to chew on, which I yeah. think they're, they're great because Camille's always been trying to avoid being like a typical token uh, Indian actor uh, type casting. And Dave Bautista is trying to break away from being- He's, uh, he's Pakistani. Pakistan. Oh, forgive me. I didn't realize that. Like, um, he's always he always being he's always being troped as that. So I kind of assumed. Right. Uh, just kind of shows that all audiences assume. Sorry, Camille. <laughs> but like, um, but he's always being trying not to be basically typecast as a typical Middle Eastern characters. But David, he's not trying not to be typecasted as like you said, the meathead. Ex wrestler. Yeah. Pairing the two together because I feel like a lot of people try to pitch David Batiste as like. They're like, well, if the arc that Rock took work, let's see if we can emulate that with Dave Bautista. And at first, that was my view of him. Is he like this new, new kind of stand-in for the next like wrestler to lead actor? But I like that he kind of tries to play up different roles, especially as we saw in like Blade Runner 2. Yeah. So for me, I was very alert by the the kind of the the, the merging of the two actors together. The only reason why I didn't see it is, like you said, I had, I've had maybe two friends tell me that they walked out after like 15 minutes of the movie and they asked for a refund. So I, hearing stuff like that made me a little turned off, but I would say I'm going to see it just for the casting, the two dynamics alone. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Good. Good to hear. Um, another one that I saw, and actually I was interested in this film, but uh, you had... Um, really sold it to me. I, I th- think you said it was one of your favorite films of uh, last year. Uh, I saw mid nineties, mm-hmm. loved it. Uh, the commitment to the aesthetic and not only the production design, but the fact that um, they shot it in four, three aspect ratio. Uh, you know, they made it grainy. They shot it on film. I just, I loved it. It was, I could see where that's, you know, very art house now. And that could turn some people off like, oh man, why is this in a square box? Why, you know, um, I, I really liked it. I liked the commitment to the period. Um, like I said, the production design was, was great. They completely nailed it. And, um, one thing I will say that surprised me, I was not prepared for how dark and emotionally upsetting that film is like it's it's heavy I I was not expecting it to be that heavy and 
I think I, I think I was expecting it to be more comedic than it was because I'll I will tell you right now, Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it. They have it branded first as comedy. I would argue that is not a comedic film. It's nope. ex- <laughs> it's, it's it's a coming of age, and there's I suppose there's a few funny parts in it, but like it's a it's a dark like upsetting movie like they're like yeah, the little boy in it his family dynamic is really messed up it's very messed up and uh but that led to a lot of like amazing acting the uh the dynamics between him his mother and his brother especially were phenomenal and i was also blown away by the boys that he becomes friends with because I, I was reading that those were all kids that were skaters and, and not actors. And that's Jonah Hill cast it that way. Um, and it, I think the thing that I liked the most about it is it felt so organic. It felt so real. And I think that some of the decisions that he made in production really led to that because I think if you wouldn't have had that four three aspect ratio if you would have you know hired you know trained Hollywood actors to be the friends of the boy I, I think it would have been a very different sort of film um but yeah I I was blown away by it it was really really good I don't know if I'd ever want to watch it again because to me it was um very emotionally raw in, a, in an unpleasant way uh, but I would highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. No, I'm definitely glad you uh, finally saw that because uh, you're right. That was probably my, in my top 10 of 2018 when it came out. Uh, and I, I think I definitely blame the reason why it was put in the comedy category is because like on face value, if marketing people just see, oh, directed by Jonah Hill, yep. they're going to assume it must be a comedy. And I'm with you. It is very raw. It is very dark. I definitely like probably like had this sinking feeling in my heart and stomach in some moments and I left feeling invigorated and then very like depressed, but it was a beautiful freshman, freshman movie. Like it was definitely like for a first go as director, like it gave me this vibe of like, Oh, it's kind of like dazed and confused where it's like a time capsule of a period that the director remembers in his youth. But then you see, like he talked in the interviews how he really wanted to go with this, how Martin Scorsese uh, was kind of his advisor during the whole directing process. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And he really wanted to go with this whole, uh, like it, it seems so kind of like film snobbish to kind of like uh, say, Oh, I'm trying to do it like this in his interviews, but he kept wanting to go in the approach of like uh, Italian realism where like, like the post world war two Italian films where they would cast virtually unknowns playing real people. Mm-hmm. And and when I first heard him say that, I'm kind of like, oh God, is Jonah Hill becoming kind of like this, like uh, I'm friends with Scorsese and the Coen brothers. I'm learning He's to be a, a director. Pretentious kind asshole. Of, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Those are the two words I was trying to figure out. And, I, <laughs> and I'm kind of, I'm still feeling that Jonah Hill might be on that arc, but in terms of his approach as a director, like this was a great first go. Like I was very impressed. Uh, like you said, with the unknowns casting, I uh, it's it's 
it's not really a world that I'm very familiar with since I grew up. I was, I would say I remember more the late nineties and early two thousands more than anything else. And so my memory of what the nineties were is still in a way alien. So kind of seeing like this, even in the way it was shot feels at the moment. Uh, yeah. Which for me, at least from someone who's never been there, I felt like I was seeing something take place then, which is very, uh, a strong rare feat. Well, being, being a few years older than you, I can attest that I, I think that I think they nailed it. Um, from, like I said, from the, the locations, the, the costumes, uh, just, I know. Well, another thing, like just the writing I was reading, cause a lot of the, the language in it is very abrasive and visceral and honestly, for being a film that came out in 2019, offensive. But mm. I was reading that one of the things he did get advised um, on by uh, from Scorsese was he was really apprehensive to put in some of the language in terms of um, use of homophobic slurs, use of the N-word, um, and... I guess they were, you know, kind of talking and it's like, Hey, how would you as a kid have talked back then? It's not, it's, it's disingenuous if you're not having that sort of language because it was way more acceptable then. Um, it's still as a person that like, you know, I, I will never use that language. I, I find it offensive. It, it's still like, Oh gosh, it, it really, it hits you. Um, you know, watching it in the, in a contemporary lens, but I, I appreciate that commitment because it is more real. Even if it turns people off, it is more real. And I don't feel like it was in a gratuitous way of like, oh yeah, let's, let's see how much, you know, we can piss off the PC police or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's just how, it's just how a group of young kids that are, you know, running around on the streets would talk, uh, especially in the nineties when there was, you know, there was, uh, a little more acceptance to, you know, a, a offensive derogatory, you know, terms. Yeah. Cause I, probably at the time it was probably the punk thing to do. The rebellious thing to do is, and I feel like these characters are definitely kind of in that same, like who they want to be as people. Kind of, yeah, as the coming of age story kind of goes into, sure. uh, like I'm, I, I haven't looked into too much of Jonah Hill's working on his next feature. I know he said many know. times that he's writing something right now, like so. I'm, we'll see what he comes out of it because it'll be interesting to see what a lot of directors are doing during quarantine right now. Uh huh. Um, couple more that I uh, watched after that. Um, Alien Day happened to pop up uh, during this time. So, you know, I had to watch Alien. That's one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. So, keep, keep um, going home for the win. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> um, Wait, wrong I'm thinking the wrong movie. I get E.T. and Alien mixed up all the time. <laughs> so easy to um, use. But any excuse to watch Alien. Uh, I, it, I was struck with how oddly appropriate that movie is um in terms of our like contemporary problems with uh COVID-19 because mm -hmm. honestly it's like 
the first half of the movie is someone is exposed to an unknown contagion and Ripley's like, Hey, we have to quarantine them. If we break quarantine, we will die. And everybody's just like, no, we're bringing it. We're bringing him in. We're bringing him in. And then the alien is, is released. So it's like, I, I, dude, I didn't even really think about it until I was watching it. I was like, whoa, this is like oddly appropriate. So if you're, if you're looking for, if you're looking for a, uh, like I said, an an oddly appropriate film for this, this time, I, I would watch that. It's, it's almost like ironic how, how paralleled it is to our, our, you know, obviously, you know, we're not dealing with aliens, but the whole idea of, you know, quarantining, um, for the, the greater good and how that can be ignored (laughs) and chaos (laughs) breaks out. It was like this, this feels a little too real, but, uh, absolutely love that movie. Um, and I could go on and on and on, but it's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. One of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. And, uh, dude, it still holds up. It still holds up. It's, it's so, so, so good. Um, it's, you know, it's a classic Ridley Scott, the, the world building and the, um, kind of auteur style of, you know, production design and it's just phenomenal. Um, and then, uh, one more before I pass it off to you, keeping it, I've, I've mentioned in the last, um, couple episodes that we've been, uh, watching other movies, but we've been slowly plodding through the MCU films. So after alien, we watched Thor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Uh, I love it. It's, it's really good. Other than, um, Chris Hemsworth's wig is awful. Uh, the fact that they dyed his eye- eyebrows blonde to try to match his wig was terrible, but they were figuring it out. They were figuring out the character, um, but it's a great introduction to the world of Thor and bringing him into the MCU. It's a great introduction to the character of Loki and uh, the world of Asgard. And, um, I, uh, it also reminded me how excited I am that Natalie Portman is coming back to that franchise because I think she was a very welcome addition to those movies. And then, um, her dynamic with uh, as Jane Foster with Thor is is quite interesting, um, and I, I'm very excited to see what they do with her as more than just the romantic counterpart mm-hmm. in Love and Thunder. Hand it off to you, my friend. Yeah, no, I'm de- I definitely was a. I haven't really even thought about the early Thor movies too for a while until you brought that up because I'm like thinking, oh right, yeah, Thor used to be a totally different character in the first two movies. Cause I just love the current Thor more now that I'm kind of like, it's going to be weird to he's, rewatch the previous ones. And it feels like a different thing altogether. Well, yeah. Cause he's like, he's so, he's a lot more serious. He takes himself a lot more serious and he's just not familiarized with any, any sort of world outside of Asgard. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is kind of fun to see him like trying to like find his footing. Um, and learn to be not only a god, but, you know, more human 
um, at the same time. So, yeah. It was kind of, it's interesting hearing you even talk about Alien with like, because um, applying with our current situation to movies we're watching, there's a lot of, I feel like right now is a great moment for, uh, what's the expression where it's like life imitates arts or art imitates life or reflects life in right, some yeah. situations. And, I, and I've and i kind of come across a lot of movies that I just kind of pick without really there being, because of course everyone's rewatching like Outbreak or zombie movies. The or, obvious ones, yeah. Yes, the obvious ones are bluntly about plague or infection or being in quarantine like with Alien is, but like, it's weird when I watch a movie and then I find a little nugget or a quote or something. I'm like, oh, that's very applicable today. And it, it becomes a lot more provocative. Like, and the most out there, like far, like from the current landscape that we're in right now that I kind of found that type of reflection in was this random BBC movie my mom was watching that I kind of just droned in her on. Like it was, I knew about the plates based on because they did a production in a local community theater and it's called An Inspector Calls. Uh, it's very lesser known. Uh, it came out like post-World War II in England. And the whole premise is, and of course it's BBC, so they're going to adopt any, adapt anything to the screen that's based on uh, British stage work. Uh, and it's literally about uh, this rich family. They're all celebrating this engagement. And all of a sudden this inspector comes to the door. And a uh, fun fact is the actor who plays the inspector is um, the one that we all know very much well from uh, Harry Potter part three, uh, who plays uh, Remus Lupin. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. He, I forget the actor's name and I'm looking it up right now, but like um, he plays the inspector and he asks all these people like there's been uh, a death and, we heard to ask some questions about her and everyone's like, why would you ask us? And as the interview or the inspection goes on, you find out that each one had a connection to the, the death of the girl without realizing it uh, through their own selfish action. And so the whole thing is basically that we should all be careful of our impact on others. Uh, because really like when you throw a rock in the pool, you never know the ripples that like will come out of it. And right, there's just right. one quote that I found very provocative and it's not a spoiler. I'm not going to get too much into it, but there's one quote the inspector says to the family uh, that like, there are thousands of people like her in this world. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it. Like, um, and we all are intertwined with everything they think, everything they say, everything they want and what they do. And if we are not careful of that, if we don't learn from events like this, we'll only learn through it affecting us personally. So it's almost like we never really learn something until it hits us close by. It's almost like we have to be taught through it to compare it with the current situation of COVID. Like we won't really learn about the effects this can cause until it hits us personally. Like in this case, yeah. someone that we know can die. And it, I kind of heard that quote and I kind of just, got chills down my spine and I'm like, oh wow, this whole notion of the actions that we have affect others, whether we're aware of it or not. Right. And it's a, it's a universal thing that I, I can find that any of our movies, but the fact that I found this in some random BBC movie that came out five years ago, that just happened to be a movie my mom was watching at that moment was just kind of a, I found myself kind of like, I had like, I had to like take a breath and I'm like, 
wow, that's totally out of the field that I was not expecting. Yeah. And it's a pretty solid movie, like strong performances. Uh, like it's really, you can tell it is a play movie because it all takes place in a living room the entire time. Only five mm-hmm. actors. Uh, they do a lot of flashbacks involving the girl and how she's connect with everyone. So you can see where they expand upon from the stage. But like, honestly, it's on Amazon Prime. The one that like that has uh, the one that I saw, it's pretty solid, like pretty emotional. And there's even this random one from the 50s that I came across uh, that came out in 54. Very British black and white drama uh, that has one of my favorite character actors in it. Uh, his name's Alistair Sims. And he just looks like the living embodiment of Ebenezer Scrooge, bald head, <laughs> crooked British teeth. And he's just always like, oh, hello there. Uh, he looks just like a caricature. And so it was fun seeing him in uh, in this movie, but I digress. But like, it was kind of, I didn't really know if I should even bring up this movie because I'm like, it seems kind of out of nowhere from what we usually talk about in science fiction or action yeah, or comedy. No, but then why not? Brought, but then when he brought up Alien and talked about how, uh, whether they're aware of it, a lot of movies kind of reflect what we're going through. I'm like, oh, I can bring this up now. Oh, yeah. So it was kind of it was kind of weird how uh, Alien made me want to talk about this British drama mystery thriller, <laughs> but like no, and so I don't know. It, it kind of made me because I kept expecting to watch a lot of plague movies, or, and like I kept expecting I'm going to watch Outbreak or Pandemic or um, or uh, Contagion. I'm referring to uh, like on Netflix any moment now, but I wasn't in the mood for that. So it's been kind of nice to like watch other things that are kind of far away from the subject that somehow still bring us back to it. Um, another weird one that I saw besides Inspector Calls was, uh, I don't know, it was kind of, I don't know why I came across it, but it was just sort of like this past, uh, it was one that as a, as a labeled film snob, I felt very obligated to watch this one. And it's one that was released maybe two years ago on Netflix it's the the lost film of Orson Welles, the the other oh, side. Right. Yeah, and I kind of was avoiding watching that for the longest time because I'm kind of like I really got to be in the mood for this one. Yeah, it definitely. You can tell that it was unfinished, and then a bunch of people besides Orson Welles were involved in the editing and the reshooting of scenes. And as an example of like, with that context, it's fascinating. But really, it is kind of a hard-to-watch movie. Uh, it's very disjointed. It's very unsure of itself. And in interviews, you hear Orson Welles referring to the making of this movie. He talks about how he doesn't like movies, but he loves making movies. And he never really knows how to really do a scene. In his later years, he became more insecure. And so you can really see there's like there's initiation in this scene, but then it goes nowhere. And then it'll cut away to something completely different. So it feels like he was more having all this fun with all these random moments and didn't really know how to orchestrate them together. And that's what the movie is about, which is even weirder. Oh, wow. Would you say that there's, so there's probably a reason why it never saw the light of day, right? Or I think originally never saw the light of day. I think so. Like, uh, well, of course, Orson Welles died before the the film was finished. So there was that, but for the longest time, they just didn't know what to do with this movie because without really any notes, they were like, how do we edit this? How do we salvage this? And 
I think it really wasn't until like the nineties or two thousands when people started to like have more respect for him. Cause in the seventies, he was just a joke of a person. Like he was like yeah. coasting on the fame of Susan Kane until his the very end. And then his buddy, Pierre Bogdanovich, who's known for doing films like last picture show, uh, uh, what's up doc and among other like guest appearances on Turner classic movies. He's kind of a modern day film snob director. He kind of helped helmet and cause he was roommates with Orson Welles in his later years when he was just our age, which is kind of a funny story on its own. He kind of would work together different editors and make it to what we see now on Netflix. And it's a fun piece with that context in mind, but it's a very tricky film to watch. It's mm. very, experimental 70s american new wave that's a type on its own it's it's it, it was fun but it was almost way too it was so meta so meta mm. uh, I, i'm still struggling to describe it um but like uh as a fan of orson wells and like 70s american cinema i felt like you know i need to actually watch this and check it off the list Makes perfect sense. Yep. And then from there, I just watched a lot more lighter films that I'll bring more up down the road in the, in the podcast. Okay. Um, so next on my list, uh, my wife and I watched Inglorious Bastards. We were talking and we we're like, hey, you know what? We're, we're in a Tarantino mood. Um, yeah. I personally think that's my favorite Tarantino mm. film. Um, and I think that that was when he was on that run of like revenge movies, revenge movies. Um, and you know, and, and a lot of, he was really, oh, I mean, he's, he's kind of flirted with the whole like revisionist history thing in many of his movies, but he was leaning into it hard. <laughs> and I mean, he still kind of is, um, with once upon a time in Hollywood. But I think that Inglorious bastards like Django were back to back. And, and those are, very much leaning hard into the revisionist history sort of thing. Um, but I, I enjoy it. He does it well. Um, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. I've seen it plenty of times before, but it had been a, been a bit. And I was struck with just how good it is. And uh, it's just so Tarantino, though. It's so Tarantino in the best way. You know, from the choice to have, like, five or six different typefaces in the opening credits and uh, the super long scenes with just incredibly long amounts of dialogue, but it, it all fits cohesively together. I, I, I can't say anything bad about that movie. I, I really, really love it. Um, and it's gratuitous and it's violence, just like his movies, which uh, if you don't like that, you're probably not going to like his films. So, um, yeah, I, it was fun to, to rewatch it. It kind of, cause you and I have been talking about, um, doing a, uh, a Tarantino, like a look at his career, like we've done with a couple other filmmakers. Mm -hmm. So I, even though I've seen the majority of his films, I think other than Jackie Brown, um, I wanted to go back and kind of rewatch before we decide to to tackle that because even though he, his output isn't huge, I think his output is very significant and it's because he's developed into an auteur, which is, 
in watching this movie, I was like, it's interesting to, he is an auteur. He is, but it's, I, I, I wouldn't say he's an auteur in the way of like a Wes Anderson where it's, Oh, he's, his style is so, so uniquely Wes Anderson. Tarantino's style is uniquely Tarantino, but it, it is all, it's all, you know, based on his influences. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting. I, I, I feel like I said, like I said, I feel like auteur, it fits him, but it's, it's, it's strange to call him that because he's, he kind of basically took a bit of this, took a bit of that, took a bit of this, took a bit of that, and then kind of made his style. Um, and then became an auteur in that. So he, he's kind of borrowing from, other, you know, classic films and classic filmmakers to become an auteur himself. So it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting trajectory. And now, like his, that's why he is an auteur because his style is so recognizable and uniquely, you know, him. Uh, moving on, uh, the next film that I watched was The Lighthouse. And, uh, I, I was, talk about this. <laughs> I was, uh, struck by the fact that, uh, the two a 24 films that I watched back to back were both in four, three aspect ratio. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a, a very interesting sort of happenstance that they're both a 24 films and they're both very art house films and they both happen to be in four, three ratio. Um, and, uh, this one, just like mid nineties, I think that that creative choice, um, worked well. So I thought this film was incredible and absolutely genius, albeit so, so horrible to watch. (laughs) Like it made me so goddamn uncomfortable. It is very, it's so bizarre and so weird and eccentric in a really beautiful way in terms of filmmaking and in terms of making you feel something as the viewer. But it's, it's another one that like, I have no desire to watch that anytime soon. Um, if, if ever, but cause, Oh my gosh, it's, it's, Oh boy. I don't know. It was, uh, everything about it made me uncomfortable. The sound design was incredible, but it made me so uncomfortable. The, the continual, uh, foghorn that they mix into the score. The, uh, the visuals go from being so incredibly beautiful from the cinematography to the lighting to then so incredibly disturbing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, dude, I just about lost it when they just cut to bam, mermaid vagina. (laughs) That's such a fucked up and weird movie. It's, (laughs) but it's it's genius. I'm with you there. It's hard to explain this movie because I saw it in theaters when I first came out and to my friends for the most stupidest of reasons thought, Oh, this is a great movie to see while a high. No. And to this day, no. they regret that choice so much. 
And so I, we were trying to convince them to re-see it sober. They're afraid to because they had such a really bad vibe, uh, more so than you because they're under the influence. Right. Um, but I don't know. It's kind of it's this weird mixture. Like the quote that perfectly summed at the lighthouse is what the director said is um, nothing good can come out of two men stuck on an island, the gigantic phallus uh, and, uh, referring to the lighthouse. So it's this weird amalgamation of like HP Lovecraft, uh, Edgar Allan Poe in its sense of like time period. And then it just kind of derails and gets more, uh, Horrible in the sense of not that it's not bad, but it's it's bad. Not that it's bad, but horrible in the fact that like just everything it just becomes like you said insane. The story the story it involves like horrible horrible things between these two guys. Um, I, I I was blown away by the acting. Again, um, you know I had previously talked about um, the filmmakers. Uh, film The Witch, and I purposely watched that before this one because I wanted to see this film. I, I am so blown away with the commitment to the the period and using the you know that dialect and using those accents, and then the actors being able to pull it off. Um, but I was blown away in this film by the commitment to the very obvious dif- discomfort that they must have been going through. Um, not to spoil, but there's a scene where how to put this delicately so I don't spoil anything. The scene where Willem Dafoe is basically reciting a monologue and he's dirty. Let's just say that. Are you? Do you? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes, I'm just letting you talk about it. Okay, that, I, th- I I don't because I don't want to spoil it because mm-hmm. it, it is a stunning scene. It's phenomenal, but I was watching it. I'm like, oh, that's legit. That that's real. That they're they're they they didn't half-ass that to like, oh, this is we're gonna make this seem like what is happening is happening, and he's still doing a monologue through the whole thing. They they must have legit done that. It, it from the way it looked to me, and I was just like, oh my god, like it must have been horrible to make that movie. Um, oh yeah. It was all and, done. And, and appar- apparently it was from what I what I read. They, like both those guys ended up they got so into the characters that they they really did not get along on set. Mm-hmm. And and the conditions they're filming in were just it was cold and wet in just this studio in yeah. Island of Nova Scotia that you can just you can just smell the salt water in you in, in the air while you watch this movie. It just feels so of its place and where it is. It there's really, I, I don't know. It's one of those movies that like I'm so fascinated by, uh, especially by the huge amounts of farts that are also in it that I was not <laughs> yeah. expecting. So gross. It the, Tonally, it is the most, like, in my mind, it's tone shift is brilliant uh, in the most horrendous of ways. Uh, it's just, all of the place. And even, and even the director said he wanted to include a lot more penis than he was allowed to do. Um, it was like on the verge of being like NC-17 or something like that. But then they didn't so, do those scenes. So, yeah. So that's one thing that – so there's a lot of – so this film is very – it's loaded with symbolism. And there's – it's I would say it, there's a lot of it 
the content is metaphorical or could be argued that it, it, it's it's an allegory for for other things because um, it's it's so weirdly surreal but the, so the penis thing I feel like there was a lot of allusion to to like you said to to like phallic like like structures there's a lot of allusion to um, masculinity and like you said like literal penis um but then there's a lot of allusion to like female sex organs mm-hmm. it's, it, so I, I don't know if this if it's like a giant allegory for for sex or sexual desire or it's <laughs> it's wild and then i mean again i'm not i'm going to be very very vague with how i say this the, the ending it's so surreal that and I think this was purposeful that I, I didn't really entirely know if what was being portrayed on the screen was in fact real or if it was a figment of the character's imagination. You know, like and I, and I love that about the film because the whole time you're wondering um, is the universe that this is taking place in is this just commonplace? You know, like it, like you said, is it is it a very like Lovecraftian sort of like um, world, or is this just a byproduct of being isolated? And and I love that like that's never answered. It really, really oh, yeah. isn't. It's and, not. Uh, so great, great movie to watch while you're in quarantine. Um, <laughs> Makes but, you spill your beans. <laughs> But I, I, I loved it, um, and, I, and I loved that uh, there, there are more questions than answers. Sometimes I don't like those kind of movies, um, but I, I, I enjoyed this one. And it is uh, – technically, it is a, an accomplishment. So um, I talked enough about – well, shoot, I guess we – I only got into two of them. We talked a lot about that one. Okay, so I'll rattle off a couple more just rapid fire. Um, mm-hmm. Next in the MCU, uh, we watched Captain America, the first Avenger. Love that movie. Holds up. Uh, I personally think that the Captain America movies are the best series within that universe. Um, they've all been good. But I, I, I like that one. It's... In terms of origin stories, uh, it really tells the the spirit of the Steve Rogers character very, very well. Holds up. And uh, next, I finally got my chance. I finally got my chance. I've been just looking for the right amount of, of time to show my wife this film. We watched Gladiator. Gladiator is my all-time favorite film. If I had to have a... Desert Island movie, that would be the movie I would watch. And uh, I was excited and nervous to show her because it's all, always one of those things where, like, if you're showing someone something that's very beloved to you for the first time and they don't react well to it, it's almost like it's a blow. You're like, oh, gosh, like, I wanted you to like this with me so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we watched it. And it had been a while since I had seen it. That movie just in, invokes so many emotions for me. It, it like, it gets to that like very 
male masculine sort of just it fucking pumps me up and just it's like the action in it and it's just it's inspiring and it's it's so heartbreaking at the same time it's oh man it's a phenomenal film and it's kind of interesting that I watched two Ridley Scott films fairly close together and they're so different it's very different eras of Ridley Scott but it has that you know those those just signature, you know, Ridley Scott things like just amazing cinematography, really wide open, beautiful, like establishing shots of like the landscape or, you know, cityscape. And uh, it's it's phenomenal. Lighting's great. The colors really, really great. Um, and uh Heather loved it. She thought it was was phenomenal. Um, I don't think she was uh, prepared for how emotional that ending is, but yeah, I even though it's been a while since I've seen it, it it still is hands down my favorite film. It's it's beautiful. It makes me cry every time I see it. It's phenomenal, phenomenal film. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was always kind of curious because I remember in our potential director episodes you you brought Ridley Scott he's he's somebody I would definitely want to do an episode on have uh in terms of like how many of his what's his have you seen his majority's filmography or like I'm pretty sure but let me pull it up yeah because I'm definitely curious to hear about really like why like what's your what's your kind of your um your take or what even is your fascination by Ridley Scott? Cause it sounds like you see, cause I know we've talked a lot about his movies in our previous episodes. He's one of my favorite and, directors for sure. Yeah. It's definitely, I I've always been like, Oh, oddly hesitant to rewatch gladiator just because when I first saw it in like, I think I was maybe a sophomore freshman in high school. I w- I was like obsessed with it. I know he's a big filmography. He does like one a year or two a year. Uh- Oh, I was actually that look on my face um, was there's actually a Gladiator Two has been announced. Yeah, I'm I, I'm curious to know how he's gonna do that. That's interesting. There's another Alien prequel announced too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so yeah, he has a a really big output. I I really don't feel like he got going. Well, he was, you know, he was directing TV, uh, but I don't really, really feel like he got going until Alien. Um, so I mm. definitely haven't seen all of these. Um, and keep in mind, he also did a bunch of shorts um, for commercials. He did the Chanel uh, shorts. He did uh, 1984 for Apple. Um, oh, shoot. I totally forgot that he did Thumb and Louise. Yeah. He's, He's got all, a very kind of all over the place as a director, but in a good way. Yes, definitely. Um, so, he, I, I think his why he's very interesting to me is he's almost went into this once his brother died. He went into this very like existential period, and I think that some of those films that he did at that time were kind of lauded, but there's really good aspects to them. Like Prometheus. Um, let's see what else he did around that time. Um, he did the Martian that got a lot of critical acclaim. Mm -hmm. Um, 
let's see here. Um, Robin Hood. I, I have to admit, I didn't like that movie. Um, Exist Gods and Kings, I think, was also in that period of time as well. Right. Um, but I think there's been an interesting thing that, you know, like he did Covenant. Um, oh, yeah. and even, even in the Martian, which I, it was an interesting movie for him too. I mean, I, I, in terms of scale, it's totally a Ridley Scott movie, but for how comedic it was, it was a, a little bit of a departure for him, but you, there's this at the core of it, there's a theme of existentialism in all of his movies since his brother has died. And I find that very, very interesting as he's like becoming an older man too, um, and I like how present that is in his in his current films. But then mm-hmm. you go back, and it wasn't nearly as a like in your face thread that is in his movies. But there is like, you know, existential sort of themes in uh, Black Hawk Down and in Gladiator and Blade Runner and even Alien. Um, so. Yeah, I think that I like the fact that, to answer your question better, I think I like the fact that he has a very a very uh, eclectic output, and but he has like signature signature things um, that that he does. Like I said, you know, big, wide, uh, sweeping landscape shots, um, you know, really slow establishing shots just kind of sit in the pocket and let us just absorb whatever the the setting is the whatever the world is and i just think he's a phenomenal storyteller uh, visually his 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 films are incredible so but yeah i i won't get too far into it i'll save it for when we ever whenever we do a ridley scott um episode i'm seeing though that i'm gonna have to like watch a lot of his mid-career stuff because there's there's some stuff Same, that i've yeah. missed so yeah a lot, a lot of bad ones but uh those are fun to talk about as well <laughs> oh yeah all right uh let's see um did you have anything else you want to bring up or uh no go ahead uh rattle a few off and then i'll then i'll hop back in like uh i kind of was all over the place as well like uh one thing that i kind of did was um kind of uh after reviewing um, the the current streaming accounts that I had and like, okay, what what's on here that I haven't seen to justify keeping the streaming account? Because I was like thinking I got to watch this movie or two movies a week just by keeping this one or I'm just going to cancel it because I need to pay money. Uh, and I kind of watched a lot of random ones on Stars, uh, which for I think two months, they're doing a free free trial for two months. And, I'm kinda, and I kind of just put off because when you're like, oh, I'm not paying money. I can watch it whenever I want. And so I kind of realized that, oh, immediately it was going to charge my, it charged my account for the third month because I realized I misread the, the whole thing. And so I'm like, oh, shit, I got to watch a bunch of movies. I just lost 10 bucks. Um, <laughs> and so I like watched a lot of random stuff, like really random. And a couple things that I'm kind of glad I watched just because – at a weird coincidence, it kind of was appropriate because it was leading into uh, a very unfortunate death of uh, one of the, uh, d- the director who was uh, involved in a lot of these movies. But I watched all the, these few indie comedies. Uh, like I watched Hump Day. I watched Sort of Trust. 
I watch these other lesser known ones that like IFC distribute sometimes. And then next thing you know it, Lynn Shelton, the director died. And so it was just weird to, for me to like kind of in hindsight, like I knew of her from episodes of Glow. She did a lot of highlight episodes of like uh, Marin, Mad Men, Mindy Project. Uh, she most famously, I would say, is known for doing a lot of uh, like mumblecore comedies that came out in that same period as like the Duplass brothers. And then she would do a lot of stand-up recordings with Mark Marin since they were partners uh, at the time. So it was kind of like weird for me to like literally watch her last movie and then a week later she died. So it was kind of wow. like this weird, like that's heavy. It, it is. Cause it's like the fact that like, Oh man, I watched her last movie and then she died. And it made me kind of want to revisit her filmography. Cause I'm kind of, I was definitely attracted to her as a director. Uh, Cause she had a lot of great, like, uh, like highlight films. Nothing was really, they were very simple, very human stories. Um, and, and like, and just to see the dynamic that she and Marin had in his podcast, what the fuck with Mark Marin, like he was so in love with her. So to kind of hear him kind of talk about what happened to her, cause she died of a, um, an undiagnosed, like uh, blood disorder and not COVID-19, like a lot of people assumed. Uh, I would definitely say her filmography is definitely to be revisited, particularly, uh, uh, Hump Day, which was kind of her breakthrough film starring uh, Mark Duplass. And it's basically with these two buddies who kind of broke paths after college. One de- one travels the world. The other one becomes like a stay-at-home dad, going to get married, um, wants to have a kid. And they're kind of at this mi- kind of a quarter-life, midlife crisis in their 30s where they're like, we haven't really done it. We got to do something crazy. We haven't done anything like and so then for some reason, in a drunk high stupor, they decided to be like, you know what? We should like film a porno together uh, for this contest. And so uh, for this real life thing that happens in Seattle called Humpfest, where all these amateurs make their own pornos and watch them together. And so they, and so like now they feel all this pressure to fall through with it. And so that's kind of the whole like situational comedy that they're in is they're like these two straight dudes who for art, they want to do a, a, a homosexual porno where uh-huh. they're having sex with each other. And then they're coming at the terms with like, can we go through with this? But really you realize the whole moral is like, really it's not the porno that they're doing. They just really want to accomplish something together to kind of almost relive what they used to. And, and a lot of male insecurity just made them go way too far. Uh, and then sort of trust is a, very sweet little movie, highly improvised by the cast about Mark Marin, who's a uh, antique dealer who comes across a sword that may or may not uh, prove that the Civil War was won by the South. Hmm. It was very random, and you can kind of tell the arc is a little like wobbly, uh, just from the fact that it's mainly dialogue, like just people talking about like what came them to own this antique shop why do they have this sword and the cast does a really great job there's really genuine humanity in these characters they feel like real people and their relationship to another feels very genuine and true hmm. uh but it, it's so light it's just you just, you just kind of watch these characters be uh and there isn't like some espionage like uh thriller 
with some twists and turns that are, say, um, under conspiracy thriller, especially with the subject matter about like a lot of uh, like Southern conspiracy theories about, oh, the South really won. The North was lying to us for decades. That's ridiculous. So I would definitely recommend those two films in her career. Uh, There's a lot more that I suggest everyone to revisit. But if you love Glow, particularly the Christmas episode, Lynn Shelton directed that. Um, I believe she won an Emmy for it. But I would definitely say in the indie community, she was a a very dear, great loss uh, because she had a lot of great potential in the years to come. Hmm. Yeah. And then uh, for a lighter note, because it's never fun to talk about (laughs) uh, death of a director. um, I watched this really uplifting, really fun movie. Uh, As I don't know if I've mentioned the podcast, I'm a big fan of like very, well, I've actually said the opposite in some ways too. I've, I've always used to say I didn't really care for movies that are bluntly eighties. But I love uh-huh. movies that are bluntly 70s. Uh, like just like that psychedelic, that colorful, that loud clothing wear. And there's this one movie. It's actually the earliest film with Jeff Goldblum in it because it came out in the 70s. It's okay. called Thank God It's Friday. Hmm. And I've never even it, heard of that. It, I never heard of it either until someone like recommended it to me because on this podcast that was doing like what to watch in the Criterion channel. And it's literally, it's very much in the same vein as like Superbad or even like a lot of uh, like Nashville where you're just kind of following these characters along mm-hmm. in one night. And because you see the typical tropes of like the guys trying to get laid at the club, the girls are trying to sneak in because they're underage into the club to have fun or like um, this married couple's relationship is tested. Uh, so a lot of intertwining narratives and Jeff Goldblum is the club owner. And this movie is literally a, a soundtrack uh, setting, uh, a lot like American Graffiti is in a way too. Um, okay, yeah. It's a very at the moment movie, specifically with how uh, uh, the mo- I would say it's was par- poorly reviewed. It has like a forty nine Rotten Tomatoes, and mm. I think, but it won an Oscar for best song because its most famous song coming out of it was uh, Last Dance. It's a last dance for love. And it's the last dance. If anyone knows that song, maybe okay. not. I listen to a lot of disco music, so I know a lot of the highlights of that period. Um, but it was just a fun movie. Like, it felt, it was a kind of a fun time capsule. Kind of like Valley Girl is to the 80s or like mid-90s is encapsulating in, in the 90s. It's confused in some ways well. Uh and, and it's such a hard movie to find. Like I cannot find it anywhere else. And Criterion Collection just took it off. Um, mm. But like it is a trip, the movie, with a lot of like first uh, actor roles for actors who became bigger later. Because I think Jeff Goldblum is like 28, 30 in this movie. Very young. Huh. And that's Anywhere just a few random ones I rattled off right there. Okay. Um so the next one that I watched, uh, I think very common one that people are watching during uh, this quarantine season, but one that I had never seen. My wife hadn't seen it either. Uh, Groundhog Day. And uh, I know it's a classic and I can see why it is. That's a fantastic film. Very, very, very well written. And it's 
holy cow. I, you know, I didn't even realize how much other comedies have stolen from that. It's clearly very, very influential to comedies that came after that. Um, it's, uh, well, not even just comedies. Cause now I'm, you know, Heather and I were talking about it. There's been so many just properties, you know, that are in film and television that have borrowed that idea of Groundhog Day and, uh, you know, done it to varying degrees of success, you know, of the idea of, okay, you, you, one day ends, you wake up and you repeat that day over and over and over again. Um, I was taken aback by how sweet and sentimental it is because I was expecting it to be way more leaning into the Bill Murray kind of screwball comedy. And it's plenty of that, but the, the romantic thread through it, I think is really what makes that film because it's very, very funny, but it, I think it would be not nearly as beloved or not nearly as watchable this many years later if it wasn't for that romantic thread through it. Cause I think that kind of like makes the film more relatable and, um, I think throws a little bit of, yeah, yeah, I guess relatable is the best way to say it. Um, throws a little bit more realism in a very sort of surreal, fantastical sort of film. Um, and I, and I love that. I think that, uh, I can see now why a lot of people consider it one of Bill Murray's better films. And then, uh, let's see here. Gotta pull up my list. Then we followed that up with That Thing You Do. I think this is a very underrated film. I know plenty of people that have not seen it. It is uh, an indie film that Tom Hanks made. Um, I think it was one of his earlier directorial uh, endeavors. And if you're not familiar with it, it's about a group of late teens, early twenties guys that uh, in the fifties, um, late fifties, early sixties. I I can't quite tell the period. Um, actually they referenced the Beatles. So it'd be early sixties. Uh, anyhow, they, uh, they're in this tiny little town in Pennsylvania called Erie, Pennsylvania. And, uh, they have this kind of just small like garage band and, they're going to enter this like local talent contest and they're, they're good friends with this guy who's at this point, he is just kind of playing in his, in his basement. He's the drummer and, but he's kind of given that up and he's got like a regular job working at his like family's, uh, appliance store and this band, their drummer breaks his hand right before they're supposed to play this talent show. And then they get, they kind of convince the guy that's, you know, the the local drummer that he seems like he's like a little bit older than them in the movie um, to fill in and they really start to gel. And basically it, it's kind of like a very it's just a snapshot of like a really short lifespan of of a band because they basically they go from total obscurity to their, you know, radio 
top of the billboard radio, you know, superstars, but it, it goes to show also like the, um, how fly by night, the bands of that period could be because they're basically one hit wonders and which is, um, very clever that the, the name of the band in the movie is the wonders. Uh, so I thought that was really fun, but, um, this is one of my favorite movies. I've seen it a bunch of times, um, but my wife hadn't seen it and, uh, it holds up, man. It, it, it really, really holds up. Uh, Tom Hanks is great in it. He's like the band's manager once they start to really, uh, hit big and it, it's, it's fun. It's cute. The music is phenomenal in it. Um, I'm sure if you're listening and you haven't heard of that movie, you probably have heard the song, that thing you do. Um, and the, the guys in the movie that play in the band, they recorded it. They learned how to play those instruments. Um, so one of my favorite music movies nice. and I'll fire off one more and toss it back to you. Um, and then uh, the uh, so it's been a bit since we were since we recorded um, our last episode because on S- Star Wars Day, uh, May the fourth, got to watch a Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. and uh, it was my wife's choice at that point, and, and I, was, I was like, "What? Let's watch a Star Wars movie." But you you choose, and she goes, "Well, let's do what we're doing with the MCU. Let's start from the beginning and go in a." Uh, chronological order. And so we started from um, The Phantom Menace. And it's been a little bit since I've seen that movie. Obviously, I've seen it a bunch. Um, I'm still convinced that it's not as bad as the rap it gets. It's mm-hmm. not It's not great. There are problems with it. But it's a fun movie. There is a few cringy things. <laughs> Uh, in terms of dialogue or acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few kind of like silly, lame things. But there's some freaking awesome stuff in that. The level of action, especially the lightsaber duels, is so far and away beyond what they did in the original trilogy. Like they stepped up the stunts and the cho- fight choreography to the next level. Um, like that, that lightsaber duel between Darth Maul, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then how John Williams did, uh, you know, that he wanted to record new material for that film. And they, he, he made, uh, he wrote duel of the fates. Oh my gosh. So good. So good. So I don't know anybody that hates on that movie, like, Come on, like that scene alone is is makes that movie, you know, at, at least pretty decent in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I mean, that movie's been talked about a lot, but I just want to kind of defend it. I don't. It's not as it's not as bad as some people like to say. Yeah. So I'm toss it back to you. Definitely, uh, that's a very interesting three movie lineup you had right there. Groundhog's Day, that thing you do to Star Wars: Phantom Menace. Because, yeah. like, each one of those, I kind of had, like, if I were to have one line remark, is, like, I don't think Groundhog Day would work now. For some reason, it's a movie that seems like, oh, that seems so lame and corny, like, but somehow it works. Like, I feel like if someone did the movie now, I don't think it would have, have like, the same impact. Because 
it's 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 interesting. And that thing you do, I have not seen that one yet. Uh, I would highly recommend it. I know I'm a big fan of music movies. Uh, I don't mind jukebox movies as long as it's not as like. I would say my least favorite jukebox movies probably Rock of Ages, but I love ones where the music is almost a character in itself in the movie versus the movie relies on the music. Uh, yes. See, I, I. No, see, I don't know. I. I don't know. I I think you should just watch it. I, I think maybe I have a different perspective being a musician myself that like a lot of it is extremely relatable in terms of like the dynamics of being in a band, the dynamics of starting a band and like trying to get it to go somewhere um, and, oh, and how uh, fleeting any sort of success you can have is. So I, I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that properly. Oh yeah, and, and and I wasn't saying it, it's one or the other, but like that's I'm definitely would say I'm alert to the fact that it's Tom Hanks's first directorial debut as a director because he hasn't done that many, so it's interestingly what subject matter allures him. And then with Phantom Menace, I'm definitely with you. It has a lot of faults, but the things that are good are good. Like uh, besides the battle of the fates scene and even the the dual pod racing. Like for those scenes alone, the movie allows rewatchability. It's one that kind of I would say growed has grown on us in time than I would say it first came out. I think the fact that we've had so many other the stars movies that also have their faults it allows us to kind of be more kinder to the ugly stepchild that is Van Menace, um, especially because like I think there's a lot worse than that. Like I think the Ewoks movies are pretty bad. Even the Star Wars Christmas special is notoriously, infamously fun bad in my mind. Like well, if I we're talking, watched- <laughs> if we're talking just films that are now what are considered canon mm-hmm. by you know by order of of Disney and Lucasfilm, I would argue that that uh, Attack of the Clones, the film that follows that, is far worse. Yes, far far worse. Yeah. And then I would argue that, you know, for the detractors of the prequels, and, and I have been one of those, like, not that, they're, oh, these are the worst films ever, but that, you know, hey, these are by no means anywhere near as good as the original trilogy. I look at them as a whole compared to the newer output as a whole. I think, I don't know, they might, I think they might be better. Um, especially, I tend to think that Last Jedi is the worst uh, film in the in the Star Wars saga. Um, that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not the worst, I think it's tied with Attack of the Clones. So I think Phantom Menace gets a, a bad rap. Yeah, I think what really helps Phantom Menace is the fact that at the time when it was the only other movie to compare it with the original trilogy, I think it had a lot to like, it had a lot going against it. But now that we have more Star Wars movies, I think there's like, I think we can appreciate each one for different reasons, but I'm with you there. Yeah. I would say Attack of the Clones is probably my least favorite uh, for for a lot of reasons that I feel like is, an, is a whole episode on its own. Uh, uh, and even my thoughts on Last Jedi, which I'm like, I'm on the fence of like the moments that are in it are great. And the moments that are bad are bad. It's, so it's kind of like, I'm a nice Star Wars fan though. The, so I'm there, there, are some, there are some good moments in it for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and then in terms of like the few things that I watched were like, um, 
Uh, I recently rewatched these two movies and it reinvigorates in my heart why I love them so much. Uh, I rewatched Babe and I uh, love Babe. Like that's, that'll that's do, a very, that's a good pig. That's, that's a, a good pig. very heartwarming movie. It's one that I loved and was afraid of as a child for a lot of reasons because it talks a lot about death. Um, and seeing talking animals when you're a little kid's kind of creepy at first, like it Uncanny Valley in a way. But this one holds up amazingly well. Uh, it kind of fit into my other filmography arc that I was following, George Miller, because I had previously talked about his ones like uh, Witches of Eastwick and Lorenzo's Oil and, of course, mm-hmm. the Mad Max movies. But then he, did, he produced Babe when he was supposed to direct it. There's a whole lot of, like, arg- arguing between him and uh, Chris Noonan, who who did direct babe that is like insane to hear that that drama of that kind happened on a sweet pig movie when it didn't happen on like a mad max movie. <laughs> um, but no, it's something that I, I rewatched it so many times as a kid and I haven't seen it in so long. And so rewatching it made me realize how much I love that movie. Um, and then the sequel, that one was directed by George Miller and you can tell that babe pig in the city was directed by, by the guy who did Mad Max. It <laughs> is, oh, he even said in an interview that a lot of his movie ideas come from the flight between uh, America and Australia because it's a overnight red eye and just the fever dreams he'll get uh, or like his ideas that he'll get from like that cabin pressure because there is this weird like study about uh, how we, our thoughts and our dreams and how we are emotionally when we're in like a high elevation, high pressured environment. Well, because yeah, well, your body doesn't operate as well, for sure. And George Miller's even said that he got the idea for Babe, Babe Pig in the City, Happy Feet, Happy Feet 2, and Mad Max Free Road, all while taking flights between America and Australia. That's fascinating. It huh. is. It's it's fun. And, like, Babe Pig in the City is its own thing. It really doesn't – it's a part, yet it feels separated from Babe in tone. But Babe Pig in the City is like, it makes a, a, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in some parts, but the whole thing is almost like, it's more of an exploration into this crazy city and you're kind of watching it just for the ride. It's a thrill ride movie versus a heartwarming, like hero's journey in a pig body sense. Uh, it's one that a lot of my friends say sucks uh, and they don't like that I really like it, but I would say Bay Pig in the City works if you're just watching it for the ride and the wholesome cuteness of it all. Because uh, I'm surprised uh, by that movie in a lot of ways. Uh, and seeing them back to back was really fun. It was a nice feel good break from a lot of like depressing horror movies and like movies that were really close to home with the whole certain landscape that we're in right now. Uh, have you seen the sequel? It's been a very long time, but yes, I have. Yeah, I can't. I can't quite remember it very well. I don't think I would have liked them as much when I was younger. I think I've met a lot of adults that like Bay Pig in the City more than the first one, and a lot of people who are younger that don't like Bay Pig in the City but love the first one. So it's kind of like hmm. it's interesting to see that comparison dynamic. Uh, another two. I even read the book Babe after seeing those movies, and it is oh. a great adaptation. Like it's a sh- I read in like a day. It's only like a hundred pages. Easy read. Uh, I bought it from Pal's Books, which everyone should do because Pal's Pal's Books has been struggling during the shutdown. So support Pal's. 
Um, and then uh, kind of ending my arc of George Miller movies, I watched his, he didn't direct the whole thing, but he did like one installment in this anthology. It's the Twilight Zone movie from 1983. Wow. Okay. I, I, I'm, had you seen it before? I, I had because on YouTube, there's so many like clips to where I felt like I've seen it. I of course had seen the John Lithgow remake with uh, 20,000 20, uh, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 feet, I think uh-huh. it is. Um, so I'd seen that one. And I've seen a lot of the originals Twilight Zone to where I never really felt obligated to see the Twilight Zone movie because I felt like I'd already seen it. Cause literally they just remake four episodes done by a different directors. So we had John Landis. And there's, there's the- one uh, original in it. Yeah. That there's- like sketch with Ackroyd. Yes. Yeah. The John with a, so, yeah. And a, so that's an original. That's like okay. John, John Landis did that one. Okay. I could kind of tell it definitely feels like the director of American Werewolf in London did this. Uh, just, and then like you go to see Spielberg who did the one about the can and the old people. And then Joe Dante did the one about the kid with psychic powers. Uh, and which was weird. And then of course, George Miller, I think did probably the strongest one. John Landis did a great one with uh, the racist who was thrown back in time to Nazi occupied Germany. But and there's a crazy story about that. Do you know, oh, do yeah. you know about the production of that? The guy that got killed on it and the girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had That's... to re-edit it because like there was supposed to be more scenes, but then the, the lead actor among other extras died in the helicopter accident, I believe. Yep. And that definitely, I huge, huge of, lawsuits. It, it kind of sandbagged this movie for sure. And I think it definitely, like, I don't know if it, if it fully affected John Landis's career as a director afterwards. Um, it's definitely a dark spot. Like, I think it was talked about in the Cursed Movies episode on that new series on uh, Netflix, I believe, like, where it kind of talks about like movies that had very notorious cursed situations. Oh, so, uh, totally. It's talked about that a lot for sure. And, uh, but I would definitely say the George Miller's episode of the remake with John Lithgow was pretty solid. Uh, it's a lot more, I would say it, it ups the ante on like, this is a trippy, scary, creepy story where what works with the William Shatner one in the original series is just, it's played out more straight and calm. Like there isn't this, fantastical element added until near the end. So I feel like I found the William Shatner a lot more believable where in the John Lithgow one, you see like this like dummy head that has his eyes bug out when he sees the gremlin and it, it kind of, it pulls you out, but it, it plays up in that whole thing that I was telling you about uh, George Miller's fever dreams on a plane. Yeah. Fact, yeah. Him writing stories. So it was fun for that, but I would definitely say uh, the Twilight Zone movie is not one that, that I would be rewatching. It was fun, but it might be one of the weaker anthology movies that I've seen just because I don't I, think it lived up to its, its potential with, with the, the people that were working on it. And it, it could have been, it could have been something way greater for sure, especially with it just being under the twilight zone umbrella. But mm-hmm. I think what would have saved it is, a lot of good anthology movies tend to have original content or at least not blunt remakes. Like with the new Twilight Zone series is, is there'll be a spirit, but it's still original writing. 
and concepts. So like, I think what really plagued it, of course, besides the John Landis incident with uh, the actor getting killed on set, um, was the fact that like you see all these big directors remake classic episodes that a lot of people prefer the episodes of more than the remake. Uh, yeah. So I think there was the, that kind of baggage at the same time. Uh, totally. I definitely fast forward through a little bit of it because I got, I got bored, which for me is a sign for I'm not in the movie when I'm like tapping on the forward key, getting through it. Because I'm like, okay, okay, I get the gist. I get just all right, play for a few minutes, keep doing it again. I rarely oh, that's do a that. Terrible sign. The fact that I felt obligated to do that for Twilight Zone movie was shows how I was really not into it. Yeah. Uh, and. So that kind of ends my George Miller filmography as well as my Sam Raimi filmography. So All right. now I'm still deciding on who I'm going to do next. I have like one more Lynn Shelton movie to do to finish her filmography. And perhaps maybe I'll move on to someone like Ridley Scott if, or even uh, John Do Carpenter. Tarantino <laughs> first so we can do that episode. <laughs> oh, I finished that one forever ago. I okay, would say good. it was the first filmography I've ever like watched all in its entirety. Okay. In high, especially in high school. And that's where I found out, okay, this is a director. I can tell this is his movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm, and I've written dozens of papers about Tarantino in high school and college. Uh, so I went through my fanboy phase. Good. You're, you're, you're talking about that in the episode. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything next? Yeah. Let me fire off um, a few. I've been talking about a lot of movies. Let me fire off a few. Uh, television shows that I've been watching um, in between movies. I, I've actually been watching, uh, you know, uh, an episode here and there of a lot of different things. So um, I started, haven't finished uh, the big show show. It's a Netflix original with uh, WWE wrestler, the big show. It's a very like, in terms of style, it's a very like classic um, uh sitcom sort of style uh and you know like live studio audience sitcom Mm -hmm. and it's it's really really cute it's uh it's funny um it's definitely like very family based um but but it's a cute show for sure so um i wouldn't say it's like the greatest thing i've ever seen but it's pretty solid and it's uh like i said pretty heartwarming um I have been very slowly starting to rewatch Parks and Recreation, and I, I have to admit this: I'm, I'm having a hard time getting like off like the the starting blocks. I, and I don't. It's been so long. I've only watched that series once, one time through, and I liked it. Um, didn't really love the way it ended, but for the most part, I liked it. Thought it was really good. Um, but I, I didn't really remember the first season and I, I don't know if it was like slow and I just don't remember that, but I'm, I'm having a hard time getting into it. Um, so I'll report back on that though. Um, I've also been slowly, uh, working my way through golden girls. Uh, I loved that show as a kid. I, wa- I would watch it with my grandmother. <laughs> um, Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite of the four? Uh, Sophia. Mm hmm. Yeah, like the, just the how sassy she is, how spunky she is, um, and that that's. Uh, I was watching it last night before bed, and um, it holds up. It's it's a it's a real funny show. Um, also very heartwarming at times. Um, 
Still working on Riverdale, still working on Sabrina. Um, I will say I think as those shows are going, like, uh, getting further on, that I have concerns about their long-term viability. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not bad, but there's a few things that I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm curious to see how they're going to, like, continue it on. Um, cause I'm, I'm wondering if they're running out of ideas, but, um, still working on those. Um, Heather and I have been watching uh, community and rewatching that we've both seen it, but, um, they added it to Netflix. So we were rewatching that. I'm, I'm right in the middle of like where that, that show is at its peak. I think the first like four seasons are just incredible. It kind of, it kind of dips down after Chevy Chase left, um, but we're like I think second season, so it's still really really good. Um, we've been rewatching uh, "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." I think the last episode that we recorded, you and I, I mentioned that I had watched the most recent season, and Heather just kind of like just kind of caught a little bit of it and was like okay, I kind of see what the deal is with this show. I, I It's making me want to rewatch it. And I was like, yo, if you want to rewatch it, I am so down. I'll watch it with you. Because um, she's like, yeah, this is like really funny. And I said, you'll like it more if you watch it from the beginning because they, they reference a lot of stuff that they did. You know, shit, that show's been on for like 15 years now. Um, but, oh my gosh, dude. The early seasons are so offensive. Because oh, it was just, I remember like so different culturally. Um, but God, it's funny. It's really, really funny. Um, and let's see here. Um, still slowly working through true blood. Uh, that show is freaking ridiculous. And I don't even know if it's actually very good, but it's really entertaining. Um, like it's bonkers. I am also thoroughly convinced that Stephanie Myers, uh, the creator of twilight, absolutely stole a lot of stuff from true blood. Oh, like put, put well, twilight neck and neck first, with though, the books. No, no true blood books came out first. Oh, they're true. Blood based on books. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. dude, dude, it like, it is shocking how many similarities there are. Um, especially with like the character dynamics. Like, oof, yeah. Anyways, um, so we kind of slowly plod my way through that. Same with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, and then uh, we've also been kind of slowly working through uh, Gossip Girl. Uh, Heather really wanted to rewatch that and was like, oh, you should watch it. I, I, I think you might like it. Um, I do like it more than I thought I would. It's it's very like teen drama um and i think a a little more catered to a a female viewership but i can appreciate it um i'm invested enough that like there's characters that i'm like oh i don't freaking like her (laughs) oh i like him i like her you know so i think if you could if you start doing stuff like that you're invested um and then uh before i toss it back to you i just um, my wife was, uh, busy and doing some stuff. And I, I was like, ah, shoot, I kind of wanted to watch a show. And I'm like, 
I had just finished um, some other things that I'm going to talk about. Um, and I wasn't really totally, it was kind of late. I wasn't feeling like watching a movie. And so I just randomly started Peaky Blinders. Ooh. And uh, so I'm like, you know, okay. It, it kind of starts off a little slow, but then they introduce a few things. Um, and I don't want to spoil anything because this is a show that's still actively going. They introduce a few things that I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Like this is, this has got some interesting dynamics, some interesting layers, um, in terms of like character dynamics and everything. And, uh, so I think I'm invested. I, I, the first like 40 minutes of the first episode, I was like, I like this, but I, I don't know if I can watch five seasons of this. But then by the time I got to the end of the first episode, I was like, okay, hell yeah. I, I'm, I'm into this. Uh, it's like crazy gritty. I, I love the, the way that they make it visually look. Um, the cinematography is great. The color corrections great. Like it, it makes you feel like you're, you know, in that period in England, like it's just kind of, dirty and just grimy it's yeah i i I like it it's um i'll report back on that one too but i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going with that one how far are you gonna see are you in season one or starting season two now yeah very like just started it like this like within a within a week okay yeah yeah i think it was like over the weekend i was watching it it's definitely a show that i know i would like i just never got around to starting it but i feel like i i should down the road especially because like it's i think it's wrapping up soon right i don't know so i'm coming into it super late i know it's still like there there's gonna be another season coming out so that's why i didn't want to like totally talk about dynamics of it but nice let's see um anything because i'm I'm kind of like looking over and i'm kind of like i've kind of noticed i rarely like doing this but i never really like talking about movies that i was very like lukewarm about or very enthusiastic about because I feel like I don't, you don't know. Have to, you don't have to dive too far into it, but you can just say like, "Hey, I watched this. Eh, yeah. I, it's okay." Yeah, because I kind of want to. I want to talk about movies. I get. They get I want to like. Oh, these people. This is what I'm trying to talk about. Because uh, I kind of feel like I felt that way toward specifically Twilight Zone movie. But I would say a couple that I was surprised by how much I loved them. Like. Um, after we did our little arc of Arnold Schwarzenegger, because we, we we talked about what <laughs> our the end of quarantine episode two, we went on like a half an hour tangent about the, the career arc of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I thought was awesome. I had a lot yep. of fun with that. Yeah, uh, and just talking about the whole, he's like he has two different tropes. He's like where he's more casted for his daunting presence, uh, like you see in like. Uh, Predator, Terminator, or even Commando. Commando, where it's more his body is the real performance that we're looking at. And then you see him where he's actually an actor, where he's like, where of course really the the thing that he's cast in is more the the contrast, where like there's this big buff Austrian man playing this character who's opposite of this actor. And I would say, because I watched Conan the Barbarian, where that's really a physical... Like we're looking at this very oddly designed human who's really buff, like uh, <laughs> oddly designed yeah. human. Because uh, he's very uh, distinct. Like, because you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I, I pretty, I know for a fact he was more casted for just his his odd symmetricalness and just his physical design. 
And then we found out that, oh, he has some chops to him in some rare, like, uh, roles where he really can't act well. Yeah. And so, and I would say Conan the Barbarian was not really my type of Arnold movie. Uh, I would say I'm allured more to ones that are in that cusp in between, like Terminator 2, or in some cases, even like True Lies, where they're kind of, you see this balance contrast, and... But then there's movies like Twins and Junior that I'm like, I love these movies. I love, I thought I was like oh thinking. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, this is the funny thing. This is the funny thing. I, for the longest time, thought Junior was a sequel to Twins because it's literally same director, Ivan Reitman, same actors, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And I'm like thinking, oh, they're coinciding sequels. No, they're just totally one offs. Like yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger went through these years where, like he's going to like Ivan Reitman and he's just like, Hey, it's been a year since we've done a comedy. Let's do a comedy. Not with anyone else, just with you. Cause he did <laughs> twins and junior all within a, like five years apart or five years. Uh, and I, I think twins is very sweet and heartfelt. Uh, it's definitely an eighties product uh, specifically with its casting. Cause really we don't see Danny DeVito as a leading man anymore. But yeah. uh, in the 80s and 90s, he totally was. Same with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And just the, the dynamic of the two of them, I thought was great. Uh, and then with Junior, it's a movie that, for me, was so bad, it's good. Like, I would definitely put that. Yeah, that in. movie is fucking whack. I know, right? Well, the <laughs> thing is, they, they talk about science. The science of how they impregnated a man. And the fact that they talk about it a lot, I'm like, okay, they're actually trying to explain how this really can't happen and how it can happen like oh created this very fertile environment in a man uh when there's no presence of a womb or anything that really can sustain a human fetus um and of course i'm not a i'm not a expert on women's biology or men biology and physiology to really talk about how that works that's something your parents will tell you about kids um like the birds and the bees and whatnot uh but like the fact that I kept wondering, I'm like, how is Arnold Schwarzenegger going to give birth? How are they going to do it? And of course, they do a C-section, which I'm like, oh, that makes more sense. Because where can the baby come out? Uh, <laughs> because really, it's either the butt or the urethra, and neither sound pleasant. <laughs> like, uh, and so I'm like, the whole time, because this is the more bonkers part about Junior. It's an Oscar nominee. For what? Best song. <laughs> Okay, that's the only thing they could actually. Yeah, that, I, yeah. I was gonna say that, or like maybe, like best makeup actor. and costuming or something. Like best actor? Are you fucking kidding me? The Golden Globes nominated him for best actor. What? Yeah, oh, that's he lost, of course, to Hugh Grant for Four Rings and a Funeral. But like, this that's is the same wild, year he did True Lies. Junior came out the same year he did True Lies, and I just love like that tandem of like casting that he would do. So I would say I'm more, I would say I'm a, I have a, even though I love like Terminator, Commando, Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I like love that nineties period where he's just like, you can tell he's just doing these weird ass movies and having a fun time doing them. Right. Uh, I was, well, he went through this, like we talked about this at the end yeah. of the, that last episode. He went through this period of like, it seemed to me that he wanted to, not be typecast and so he started to take like these very strange roles and i think he also wanted to kind of like like you said show his acting chops and then kind of soften his image 
Mm-hmm. Um, and because I, I think that honestly, what led him to absolute superstardom was taking more diverse roles mm-hmm. because I think he could have easily been like a, Oh, well, yeah, you know, he's, he, all he's got is a few one liners and he's j- jacked to the gills and he's great. If you want to, you know, an hour and a half movie with, you know, shoot him up sort of, you know, style action violence. Well, the weird thing about, uh, I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger is in that weird, like spot of a actor where they're typecasted really as themselves in a sense, because really the comedic bit in most of his movies are Arnold Schwarzenegger's playing this. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a twin Dana Vito. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a pregnant man. Arnold Schwarzenegger is an everyday family man. I feel like, He's weirdly. He has writers even write to his style of like mm-hmm. it's it's now like it's this sort of tropey sort of cliche thing that in Arnold Schwarzenegger movies like he's known for his one liners and oh, I mean, yeah. like he's not coming up with those off off the dome like they're being written for him and I think it like somebody you know down the line figured out okay this guy's really good in sound bites let's write him sound bites. Mm-hmm. It's also, I would almost say Arnold Schwarzenegger, when it comes to actors, because he's just so distinctly recognizable and iconic, like, I always kind of wondered in the sense of, like, recognizable actors, could the word auteur be played to the sense of an actor's ability in the roles and movies they make? Because really, when you see an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, you, you know it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Like I'm trying to think where that line could be for, because he's also a producer and has a very influential say in how the movie is made and uh, displayed. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's tough. Um, I mean, that's a larger discussion on like auteur theory. Mm-hmm, uh, I would say that like, uh, I, I think that. Uh, I mean. That's tough because auteur theory is really in reference to the the driving creative force behind a film. And it's much more – it, it defines more as filmmakers. Um, but I, I can't completely disagree with you. So – I would wonder if maybe there is, um, if there is like a, because the definition, I'm, I just looked it up, a filmmaker whose personal influence and artistic control over a movie are so great that the filmmaker is regarded as the author of the movie. Um, In some cases, I definitely think that definition, I'm, of course I'm cherry picking from the definition, is like, in this sense, I you see his thumbprint and his influence, specifically in movies like even Last Action Hero, where like oh. uh, movies where yeah. he's a producer, and even had like you said actors write for him. So it's almost like he's not directly the auteur, but people almost fill in the void of the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger package as if it's an almost like a not tour package. Like I, I'm trying to, I'm struggling with how to describe it too because I'm like wondering when. Like, cause it's more of, he is the vehicle. He is 
not the voice, but he's what people are using their voices to paint toward and translate through and filter through. Oh, you're 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 totally right. I I feel like there needs to be a term for that because, um, there are some actors and actresses that are such gigantic stars that it's less of, oh, this was a you know this director film it's a Arnold Schwarzenegger movie yeah. uh somebody else that I I feel like very much is uh, movies are kind of created around them but they're such a huge star that they have a lot of like producer control so I think maybe that's that's where the line is is like production control uh would be like Tom Cruise oh yeah like, definitely movies aren't they don't have Tom Cruise in them. Like they're Tom Cruise movies. And I, mm. and I feel like it's the same with Schwarzenegger. Um, but then on the other side of the, uh, of the coin, somebody who's just very much like a, 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 a craftsmanship sort of actor would be like a Daniel day Lewis. And I feel like he's an auteur in the sense that like films kind of revolve around him as well because of his, methodology in terms of acting um so i i don't know we have we have to i don't know we might have to it's a stumper like I'm we need to start writing a, a, a an updated film theory book and come up with some terminology for uh auteurism in uh with with in regards to things that are within film but not um a filmmaker yeah, like can 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 a star vehicle or can a movie star be labeled an auteur? Okay, we're working on our book. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but like um, and then to kind of like because I would say I've watched five Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I did both Conan movies, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, uh, Twins and Junior, and then Total Recall. And boy howdy, I did not expect that type of a trip when I was going into it. Because at first I was expecting it to be like, is this like a sci-fi North by Northwest where it's a mistaken identity and a man's in the run from the law? And then it just unravels into the probably some of the best practical effects I've seen since the probably one of the best. Like it, it was given an honorary award for the uh, what it did, and like I would put it up there with like Alien and the Thing with just groundbreaking and amazing practical effects that are yeah. obviously practical effects but still look amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool I movie. I really enjoyed it. It's I been was a long time since I've seen it, but wait, you haven't seen it? I uh, I have. It's been a very long time, though. Yeah, it's. I think it allows rewatchability because it definitely, specifically in in like how it's based on the short story and how obviously off it is from the subject matter and how it was written for Arnold Schwarzenegger and they just hired around him. I, it's interesting for me to like look revisit that movie with these new questions I have about auteur theory in regards to a, a star power. Yeah. But that's kind of, and that kind of, of course, isn't the end, but it's just the beginning of my mini Arnold Schwarzenegger film festival that happens every month. <laughs> um, so I'll rattle some off. Okay. Well, well this first one, unfortunately, I think is, there's going to be a little bit of conversation to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, uh, decided to, uh, I don't remember what the reasoning was. Um, but my 
Uh, my wife, she's really into romantic movies. Mm-hmm. And um, more so than I am. Uh, romance and romantic comedy. And uh, But I, I have been known to really enjoy a good romantic movie or a good romantic comedy. I, I'm just, I'm very particular in, in what I like. Um, but I usually can find good good romantic movies or good romantic comedies in, in sort of indie filmmaking. So I heard great things about this movie called The Lobster and that it's a great romantic movie. And <laughs> we throw it on. And I know that you love this film, Jimmy, but I I have to say I I vehemently um, despise it. I I really really did not like it. Um, I it had some good technical aspects to it, but I I really just did not not enjoy it. Um, and then. Uh, I don't know. I, I I will say it was wildly original, wildly original. Um, I, I don't know. I, um, I think that the romantic thread through it wasn't, I like romantic movies that are relatable. That was in no way relatable to me. Um, and, and then it also, I, I really didn't enjoy how disturbing and upsetting that movie was. And it wasn't to me, I, I couldn't find the thread of like, ah, oh, this is, this is disturbing and upsetting for this reason. I understand that that was the world that they were like the, the mm. universe that they were portraying, but I don't know. It was, it was just weird and, and, and upsetting and like very like, tonally strange in a way that like hardcore turned me off um, in, and not in the same way that lighthouse pulled you in and made you like it out of curiosity like because there is some similar uh, things those two movies have both being a 24 tonal dark metaphor metaphor and allegories for I'm see struggling. to me to me i i i think that the the world in which the lobster takes place was more defined and even though like that that is a very like dystopian sort of fantastical um and then there's some some bits of surrealism the lighthouse is all surrealism surrealism we don't even know whether or not what we're seeing is actually happening in these in this universe that the characters are in or if it is just a figment of the character's uh, imagination um whereas the lobster is very much kind of like laid out as like, okay, this is the world. These are the characters. This is what's happening in it. And I, I just really did not like the characters. I, di- I didn't like the, the world in it. And I think the one thing that I was like really hoping for when it kind of like, you know, starts to climax, <laughs> dude, that ending, ah, oh, there's like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel anything was like resolved in it. Um, it's definitely that director Yogoslav Fimos is his all filmography is definitely in that same vein. Uh, the the favorites definitely a lot more like I would say weirdly more accessible in his films than uh-huh. like the other ones. 
the lobster though, like it's interesting that like, cause when you were talking about a romantic movie, I'm like thinking, Oh, what is he going to talk about? And that, that was actually the least last thing I was going to think of was a lobster. Like, do you think you may have gone in with like, do you think your mindset was like, cause I feel like for, for, a, for that type of movie, I feel like you almost need to definitely be in the right mood hands down, especially for like movies like the lighthouse and the lobster. Like, do you think there might've been some like, uh, expectation you went in possibly i was certainly expecting it to be um i i so to me that leaned way more into the make the audience uncomfortable and into the um just darkly bizarre than what i was expecting I was expecting it to be eccentric and weird because, like, I I knew the premise of it, and obviously, like, that's a very strange premise. But I, I just found it to be like very like disturbing and and like it. Yeah, it turned me off. It was like smelling something bad. I just like I uh, I did not enjoy it. Um, yeah, no, it's one that I haven't not. I I would definitely admit, even though I put it on my top ten of that year, I think it was twenty sixteen. It came out. Uh, like it was definitely one of those movies that I don't think I am in the mood to rewatch anytime soon. Like it oh, is definitely, uh, yeah, no. Though it's it's such a blunt, surreal allegory for like the flaws in relationship in human relationships. Like, well, and then and societal pressures on, uh, you know, to to get married, to settle down, and like and how we like how we define like who's right for you. And I, I did like that, but I, I think that maybe they could have obviously, well, I mean, I'm not even gonna say what I was going to say because it, it doesn't matter what I think, because clearly like it was very critically um, praised and um, a lot of people really, really enjoy it. I, I think, let me rephrase this. I think the way that I personally would have enjoyed it more was if it had that sort of like dark dystopian stuff, but it wasn't so crammed down your throat and like the, mm-hmm. you know, let's purposely make the audience uncomfortable if that wasn't so crammed down your throat and the kind of like awkward, eccentric, like um, comedy and character interactions were a little more prevalent. And then the, I, I need, I need some sort of like poignant yet sweet thread through it. And I, I just didn't, I didn't feel that like their whole, the main couple, their whole dynamics at like, I I just didn't, it didn't make me, it it didn't endear itself to me. I know that's hundred percent fair. I'm definitely with you there on like, it is very direct and blunt and heavy handed. And a lot of it's like shock value factors. Cause it's almost like they're trying to uh, coincide this shock value, like senior element with this uh, message trying to get across in regards to like we were saying, like criticizing uh, relationships and pressures in relationships from society. Yeah. And I feel like there could have been more of a subtle way to go about it, but I guess the director only felt like his way to get a message across was to make you almost like in a weird way. It's almost like he felt like the only way to open the door, so to speak, is to almost disturb you or shock you into opening it up to get the message across, which can never 
it's a very slippery slope. It's a very cautious like uh, tool that directors need to be aware of because in this way, like I've noticed I'm, I'm really into tonally weird movies. I've noticed like, it's almost like a, I like mood setters. And I think that's where the lobster worked for me in a way. Like, uh-huh. but I think I'm curious to know how I feel if I rewatch it. Cause I've not seen it in like three, four years. So I, I definitely will. I'm curious to know if my mood's going to change completely about my view of it. I can usually get get behind, um, you know, strange tonally, mm-hmm. strange films that are in a tonal way. Um, but I don't know. I just it didn't land for me. So we're gonna wrap it up. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast, and I think we're gonna have to do another episode of this because, like you had mentioned, um, even though things are kind of starting to open back up. Theaters are going to be one of the last things that are. So mm-hmm. I think consuming a lot of home media is still going to be the thing for uh, a, a while longer. So we'll have to get back at that. Um, but yep. yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to leave it right here. So it doesn't get super long. <laughs> I know. All right, cool. Thanks buddy. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me. All right, you nerds, that's all I've got for you today. Thanks so much to my guest host, Jimmy Levins, for joining me today and talking about our quarantine watch list. It was a super fun conversation. Like I said, there will have to be a part four because we kind of had a few left still on our list. We didn't want to make the episode super, super long. And I'm assuming by the time that we actually can get together and record again, that we'll have watched some more stuff. Actually, I'm not assuming. I know that for a fact. So be on the lookout for that. If you are digging what I am doing here on Nerds with Opinions, follow me at nerds underscore opinions on Twitter and Instagram. And here is a big, 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 big update. Nerds with Opinions will no longer be on SoundCloud, Nerds with Opinions is now going to be distributed starting with Spotify. We're not on Apple Podcasts yet, but we are on Spotify. So you can check this out on Spotify if you're listening to it. You were probably listening to it on Spotify. And we're just going to start growing the reach as much as we can with this podcast because I want to get it out to more ears. Uh, So you're going to see some things changing with it, but I'm hoping hoping that's you know going to be for the better changing for the better and more activity and and all that good stuff but the big big announcement is nerds of opinions is now available on spotify so follow nerds of opinions on spotify check out the episode download the episode share it with your friends all that good stuff and from here on out everything's going to be on spotify and um Hopefully here soon, Apple Podcasts as well. So thanks so much for checking out the episode. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holbin, and you have been listening to Nerds with Opinions.